Sisters and brothers in Christ, grace and peace to you this day from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus, who is the Christ. Amen. So I'd like to ask you a question before I begin today, something to kind of get your mind in the right frame of mind. What is at the center of your life? What do you hold most dear? Now, think about that for just a moment. Now consider this. Is Jesus the center of your life? I think if we're honest with ourselves and we think about words like this, we will find that Jesus was probably not the first answer you thought of. I think when we take pause to think and answer questions like this, we're pretty good at realizing that we hold many things dear and that these things are important to us, but also that these things sit in tension in holding on to us. And harder yet is changing the things at the center of our life. We do not let go of things very easily. Maybe as you thought about that question, you might have also immediately realized that something that shouldn't be is at the center of your life. And we have all kinds of thoughts and emotions when we realize that the things that are that should be at our center aren't. Now as we turn to our text for today, we hear about a day in the temple in Jerusalem, which was supposed to be at the center of life for the Jews. This was primarily because the temple was the very place where God dwelled. Now the first temple had been built by King Solomon some 1,000 years before Jesus existed. And though that temple was destroyed by, by the Babylonians in 597 BC, it was rebuilt by the Jews 82 years later after they returned from exile. And the second temple is described as less than grand especially compared to Solomon's temple. But it was built and maintained zealously by the Jewish people themselves. King Herod the Great, the king that was in power when Jesus was born, had begun a refurbishment project of the temple in 25 BC that we hear from our text today lasted 46 years, making it one of the most grand and ornate structures ever built by human hands. Especially since their return from exile, the Jews had attempted to keep the temple as the center of their worship life. And if we look back into the Old Testament, especially from our text today, which was the Ten Commandments, we hear that God tells us, I am the Lord your God, you shall have no other gods. This also includes our idols. God was and still is supposed to be at the center of our lives. And many other texts throughout the Bible, of course, tell us this again and again. And God was to be found in the temple. But as Jesus enters the temple outer court on this particular day, he sees the temple representing something quite different. And that worshiping in God's presence was obviously not the focus. What we hear is there was big business happening in the temple court. Worship had been commercialized and commerce was running amok. If you had come from afar to Jerusalem to worship, all that you needed for worship could be bought in the temple outer court. Yes, you could buy cattle and sheep and goats and doves and worship garments, 
all that you needed. And because Caesar ruled the day, you could bring your coinage that had his face on it and exchange it for coinage that did not to pay your temple tax. Now something worth considering in all of this is that if we consider the laws of worship, for those that have read Leviticus, who reads Leviticus? The animals and possessions that were to be used for worship in the temple were supposed to be the first fruits of your labor. The animals for sacrifice were supposed to be your unblemished best animals of your herd. You were to bring that blessing that God had first given you to praise God. You were supposed to bring these first fruits, not just because of your worship life, but because God was the center of your life. But instead we hear that the temple was operating at vending machine efficiency. And the reason that you had actually come, that is to deal with the repentant rendering of your sinful heart, now boiled down to haggling for a religious transaction. And when Jesus sees this, he does something. We hear of the Jesus we do not often reflect on. He gets angry. He fashions a whip and he drives all of this commerce and the commodities associated with it out of the temple court. This was not some understanding about truth to power. He does this in the same way that Jesus casts out demons, how he heals the sick, and especially how he deals with sin. Because what we hear here is the Jesus of zeal. Jesus that removes the ease of keeping God appeased. God is not something to be kept off at a distance. He's not bought off. God is not transactional. God is a jealous God. And God is a God who comes near. Jesus cleanses the temple and in that same event he establishes a new one. But the new temple is not made of stone, it is made of flesh. And Christ himself is the cornerstone. When Jesus is asked by the Jews, show us a sign why you have done this, he actually states the purpose of his ministry. God had not only come near, he was standing there before them. They just couldn't see him. The temple of stone would no longer serve a purpose. This was not how God's people would know God any longer. In fact, historically, if you remember, some 40 years after Jesus makes this statement, the Roman army destroys that temple, and it has never stood since that time, some 2,000 years later. Jesus had come to make God known in a new and very real way, and he actually came and changed God's name. Prior to this event, God was known only in his wrath. But the God who walked into the temple that day was a God of mercy. And Jesus came to speak that truth into all of human history. This event, as most understood of, happened during Holy Week, 
the day after the, uh, the procession and the parade in on Palm Sunday. And in just a few days, Jesus would make the temple and its function meaningless. Because God was no longer found just there. He had come in his son, whom he had sent into the world to take on the human condition, to live under its curse, to take on the sins of all humankind, and to die for them. One final sacrifice, the blood of the lamb, once for all. Christ Jesus, the one whom John the Baptist proclaimed, is the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sin of the world. And later that week, in Holy Week, the Jews themselves would literally destroy the temple as Jesus foretold. They nailed it to a cross. They nailed him to the cross. And death came. But that was not the final word. Because God always has the final word. Not sin, not death, not the work of the devil, not the work of the world. God has the final word. And in three days, God raised the temple. And the tomb was empty. And the disciples remembered all that he had said. Friends, the gospel writer uses the word remember twice in this text. And John expresses a spiritual importance in putting this text at the beginning of his writing, where in the other gospel writings, it comes towards the end. The other gospels lay it out in that Holy Week scenario, but John places it just eight verses after he has told his mother at the wedding at Cana, my, my hour has not yet come. And this remembering actually shifts our knowing the God of the Old Testament to knowing our God of the New Testament. And what was remembered by the disciples initially came from Psalm 69, which also carries the weight of the cross. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. It is for your sake that I have borne reproach. That shame has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my kindred, an alien to my mother's children. It is zeal for your house that has consumed me. The insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. Christ himself is the house he speaks of. But what Christ does is hidden from us by Satan, and so other things take the center of our life. But then Jesus enters in and says, remember. Friends, the Holy Spirit has brought you here today to remember. Not to remember the historical event of this event some 2,000 years ago, but to remember today the gospel promise that claims each and every one of you. It is as real today as if it was newly given to you, because it is. Jesus Christ is the very presence of God, and for those who are baptized into Christ, you are one with him. You live in the very real presence of God every minute of every day, whether you recognize this or not. And Jesus may not be the center of your life, but I guarantee you, you are the center of his. In fact, 
He will tell you that specifically today. As he invites you again to his table and he says, my body, my blood for you. For you. And he tells you to do this in remembrance of him. So that you would remember him today. Now the world says this is foolishness. This can't be. But to those who are baptized into Christ and know him and trust in his name, these are the most powerful and sweetest words that we hear. And so that you would know that the temple of God is in him alone and you are there always, he declares your freedom from sin and from the demands of the world. Because God is the God of life and the God of death and where you are at the center, God has promised to be. And Christ has centered you in his life and in his death, which is a bold and beautiful promise. A center where you know without a doubt God's mercy and at that center where you get the foretaste of the feast to come and that comes in new life. You see, because Christ knows that you will not put him at the center, he puts himself at the center. In that place where through his body and blood and his word, faith is known. This is our good news for today. Thanks be to God. Amen.